I was uh, in seminary once, not too long ago, although it feels like too long ago, and I got, I had the privilege of preaching a few times in my spiritual mentor's church. He's my systematic theology professor, and he, he preached every Sunday. He just had a real high commitment to pastoring and preaching as well as professoring, and so I got to preach a few times in his pulpit and down in South Carolina, and one time he gave me the high privilege of preaching at Easter, and afterwards in our systematics class, he was laughing about how he said, you know, I got back from my trip, and the next Sunday I was talking to some of my parishioners, and they were telling me, that was the best sermon that's ever been preached here. And he said, he said that's great. And then he cocked his head and went, wait a minute. And he told that to our class, and of course it honored me, and, and everybody laughed. But I kind of know what that feels like now. Um, after, after last week, you know, Paul preached Revival uh, Sermon 2 of 5, and it was just so good. It was so rich. And so now I, I, would, I would think about, uh, about Paul's sermon, and, and he um, gave us that word that uh, I pray that I could continue um, to preach in line with, with what he did with regard to revival as we talk on revival and as we ask God to revive our hearts to make us alive again. Um, one more quick note, a, uh, an Egyptian pastor from the biggest church in the Middle East, I think, but certainly in Cairo, came and, and spoke with us a couple years ago, and he said, give your uh, parishioners, when you're out of the and he said, give them good preachers, um, because I, I was away once, and I came back, and one of my parishioners came up to me and said, I know you love us. And he said, thanks, why, why do you say that? And he said, because you, you give us, when, you, when you're away, you give us preachers that are better than you are. And so from last week, you know that I love you because we brought, we brought Paul on staff. He can do pretty much everything. I haven't, I've yet, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mission of mine to find something he can't do, but he can do pretty much everything, and he can also preach the lights out and just gave us a great word on repentance last week, for which I'm thankful. Um, well, this morning, we're in a really hard text. There are hard hard sayings of Jesus, and some people have written books just on the hard sayings of Jesus, and there are courses on the hard sayings of Jesus. Tim Keller uh, talks about that with regard to this sermon, I think, and he says that, you know, there are hard sayings to understand, but there are also just hard sayings to accept. And this might be some of both, but I think largely it's fairly clear what Jesus is asking for. He's asking for all of us or nothing. And this really cuts against the grain of our American Christianity. And it's, it's really a hard word to accept and not so much understand. I want to give you three points this morning. No surprise there. I want to talk about the high cost, first of all, and for the majority of our time, the high cost of following Christ. And then I'll move to taking his own medicine, point two, and finally, homes for him. We'll finish with homes for him. But looking at the high cost of following, of following Jesus you know, the claim that he makes um, where he says, look, if you want to be my disciple and you want to follow me, you must hate everyone who is dear to you. You must hate your family. And he goes through the litany of family members, starting with father and mother, and on to, on to children and even spouse. And even yourself, he says, you must hate and deny yourself and follow me. If you want to follow me, you have to follow me all the way. It's an outrageous claim. He takes the highest in the ancient Near East, cultural loyalty, the highest cultural loyalty, that of family. 
and he just smashes it to bits, completely challenges it. Family in the first century, um, you never disgraced your family, and still in the Middle East today, we have, you know, Tara and Meti here, perhaps others um, that have been here before as well, but Tara's here now, and she could tell us this is true. You know, you, do, you don't disgrace your family. Um, it's the ultimate sin in an honor-shame culture, which the Middle East still is. You don't, you don't move away from your family. I mean, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but here at this time in Jesus' day, you don't disgrace your family. You don't move from your family. You marry who your family wants you to marry, somebody that they set you up with. You are bound to your family. That's your ultimate loyalty in this culture. And Jesus is saying, um, here's a normal agenda for someone's life. Here's your highest loyalty. Um, you have to be willing to kiss highest loyalty goodbye for my sake. And if you cannot do it, you're not worthy to follow me. It's, it's an outrageous claim. It's an outrageous claim. It's an outrageous claim unless Jesus is who he claims to be in the Gospels. And that's actually one of the things that we want to do as we reach out to other people in this sort of evangelism training course that we're doing in our parishes right now. We want to introduce them to Jesus and let them see, especially, for instance, if they're a Muslim friend of ours, which I'm praying for, that some of us that God would put us into contact with, in a relationship with, and to pursue Muslims for whom Jesus died and whom Jesus loves. Uh, but that they would see that actually you can't say Jesus is just a good man, like he doesn't allow you that. He, he clearly, in various ways, shows himself to be something more than that. Here are these these really unparalleled words from C.S. Lewis. If you've read or heard any Lewis, you've heard this quote. He says in Mere Christianity, I'm trying here to prevent. So this is under the, under the um, category. His, Jesus' claims are outrageous unless he is who he says he is. Lewis says, I'm trying to, here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Okay, what's that? I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. You hear that in, the, in a lot of very, in various ways. Even if it's not articulated, people say, yeah, he, he's a great guy. There's nothing to object to there. Actually, he claimed to be God, and he claimed full allegiance, even so much so that your allegiance to him compared to anything else would be like hatred to that other thing. That's how much more he wants your love. It's crazy, unless he is who he says he is. Okay, so he's a great dude, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say, says Lewis. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg. So he believes he's God, but he's actually not. He's crazy. Or else he would be the devil of hell. The devil says worship me, but he doesn't deserve our worship. You must make your choice, says Lewis. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left us that open to us. He did not intend to. So there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, look, if you're just going to say, I'm a great moral teacher, and you're going to follow me like you would follow other teachers and still have other loyalties that compete with me, I'd rather you say that I'm a lunatic or crucify me. Reject me. I would rather you reject me than follow me halfway. Okay, that's worst. That's the worst option is one of the things that he's saying here. Okay, it's a hard, it's a hard word. 
Um, but actually, so it's hard, but actually, if we start to think about it and meditate on it and dig into it just a little more, I think we can begin to see that there's some real beauty here in what Jesus is saying. So let me try to, let me try to unpack that. My kids asked me this week, I think it was Seth, top bunk, I'm trying to remember which bunk was it that asked me, top bunk, Seth, my son, asked me, we're reading through the Chronicles of Narnia, and I know, I think Ted's reading through the Chronicles with his kids. Um, Maybe not. That was Jesus' storybook Bible. Anyway, I've got lots of friends that are doing that. I'm not the first. And we're in, we're almost to the silver chair. We're just, we're in the second to last chapter. I taught my kids the word penultimate last night. We're in the penultimate chapter, kids, of the Don Treader. <clears throat> and I started to talk, I started to get them excited for the, the silver chair, which I actually prefer. Uh, I think it's a great one. And, and uh, we talked about the witch who is green and who lives under the earth and who turns into a snake. And he said, I think before I said the bit about the snake, he said, is the witch good? And I, I began to say, um, well, actually, no, there's no such thing. But then I thought, okay, it depends on the story. Um, but I, I said, she's evil. But the thing is about the green witch in, in the silver chair is that she actually appears. I said, son, she actually appears really beautiful and really good. And her words are quite enticing at first. And I said, that's the way evil is. It, it appears enticing. It's like the hook that I went fly fishing last week. It's like the hook that, I mean, that, that worm seems like a really good thing to those fish, but man, it's their death. And that's the way sin is. It's candy-coated, but it's a, it's, it'll get you. It'll stick you. It'll kill you in the end. And it seems beautiful, and it seems good. That's why we bite onto that hook. And that's the way witches are, son. Um, and that's the way that um, things are generally that we can't trust, like the used car salesman or the vacuum cleaner salesman. I'm not saying you can't trust those people, but I am saying that that's, you know, the bad stereotype is like they make it seem so easy. Hey, nothing down. Uh, it's easy. It's beautiful. There are no problems here. And then when you drive it off a lot is when the engine falls out, you know. And so it's the low, it's the, it's the, the low call and then the high cost. But what people that we trust, great coaches, great teachers, People in general that we trust in life, they often will say, look, this is going to, they make us count the cost ahead of time. This is going to cost you big time. They tell us up front, a good builder will kind of tell you a high price up front, and then he might finish a little lower. Whereas the tendency is for the builder to say, it'll cost about this much, and then it ends up costing you double. That's kind of like a pretty standard. Um, so Jesus, he does something that shows us actually that it's a pattern of people that we trust. He says, look, if you fall, he turns around. Um, uh, a pastor in, in I think, Cayman, a Tibidi, I'm going to butcher his name, Anyabwili, Anyabwili, okay, sorry, Tabidi, we'll call him Tabidi. He says, Jesus is followed by a crowd, and actually he's followed by, it says, great crowds, huge masses. But he doesn't, uh, he's not at all convinced it's a revival, says Tabidi. He's followed by great crowds, but he's not at all convinced it's a revival. He turns around as he's followed by all these people, and any one of us would be like, okay, let's take a tithe, or here's what we're going to do. We're going to marshal all of you together and go do something, or follow me. And he's, he basically just gives them every reason not to follow him from the start. He works very hard at saying, don't follow me unless you count the real cost of following me. Okay? And that is a mark of trustworthiness. So God is the opposite of the witch and of, of evil and of things that we can't trust. He often comes across hard and harsh at first, but when you get to know him, he reveals himself for what he is, which is beauty and truth and goodness. Okay? 
And this is actually, again, a sign of Jesus' honesty. He's not going to sell you something at low cost, high value. Okay? Um, this is going to be tough. Think three or four times before signing up for this one. If you accept, it's going to demand everything from you. It's also, so it's a sign of his trustworthiness, actually, but it's also, um, it's also really sensible. A lot of things work this way. Um, so a lot of things, they're just not good. They don't work if you, if you kind of take them halfway, like coffee. I love coffee, okay? I usually bring coffee up here. It's water today. Um, cold coffee, Tom Dosh introduced me to it. He, got, he was in a cold brew kick for a while. Cold coffee done right, if it's really strong, can be really good. Espresso, sometimes I get espresso at Starbucks instead of coffee because I know it's gonna, I'm going to sip on it for a while, and cold espresso is great. Um, especially if it has some milk in it, but and, and hot coffee is great. I never get when people throw ice in their coffee. I'm like, oh, why are you doing? I'm sure some of you probably do that, but I love hot coffee. I love cold coffee, but warm, like tepid ugh, coffee is just bad. It's halfway done, and it's just worthless. It's it's it just gets in the way. It's worse than worthless. Um, cake. My wife bakes a ton of cakes, so cake's similar. Like um, a, a cake that's fully baked is fantastic. No cake, fine. I'm not tempted. You know, my waistline. But, man, if you bake a cake halfway, and I think once or twice, you know, Robin's, Robin's great at baking cakes, but once or twice she's kind of done a half-baked cake, and they're not good. <laughs> not, not just hers, but any half-baked cakes. Y'all are like, you're going to hear about this later. I know. Yeah, no more cakes for you, sir. Um. A half-baked cake is, is worse than worthless because you've put time and ingredients and effort into it, and it's, nobody's going to eat it. It's disgusting, so you might as well have just not done it at all. Um, planes, let's, go, let's take it up and out. We've got coffee and cake, big deal. Planes, think about a half-built plane. Tons of expenditure, worse than worthless. Or a mostly-built plane, that's even scarier because then that, might think, that thing might actually make it up in the air, but I would not want to be in a mostly-built plane. Or a bridge, you ever seen that Tacoma is it the Tacoma-Washington Bridge that uh, maybe it's in the 70s or something? It starts, to, it starts to do this and undulate, and then eventually it does this sideways, and there are cars on it, and it breaks apart. Man, that is frightening. You know, a bridge that's not done all the way, you engineers. I would never want to be an engineer. Hats off to you, sirs. And, and ladies. And ladies. We have laurels and engineer. Okay? That's amazing. You don't want to, you don't want a half-built or a mostly-built bridge or a plane. Um, what does Jesus say? He said it's better not to start a tower than to build it halfway because you're out expenditure of money and time and energy. And what can you do with a half-built tower or maybe closer to home for us, a house? Nothing. It's just an eyesore. It's embarrassing. Everybody, all the neighbors look around and say, what did he or she do? That What a waste. You can't, there's, you can't, it's not half good. It's just worse than worthless. Um, and the same thing with someone who wages war and doesn't count the cost, right? Um, goes to all this trouble and ends up having no chance of winning because he didn't count the cost and tons of people die. So it was better just to sue for peace at the beginning, right? Um, what he's trying to do, it's real sensible. Things work this way. There are lots of things that work this way. It's better if you do them all the way or not at all. But all, <clears throat> also he's just trying to save us the trouble. Like better not to follow me at all than to follow me halfway. That is a sobering, sobering word. Um, worse than worthless. That little bit at the end that Brooks read on the salt, um, and he, he kind of pivots at the end and it says, 
hey, you know, salt, if, uh, if it loses its flavor, it's only, it's not even good to be thrown out on the manure, pi manure pile. That's all there is for it, really, is just toss it out. It's just a waste. You know, they would get salt largely from the Dead Sea, and it had gypsum and other impurities in it. And if it wasn't purified, imagine putting unpurified gypsum-filled salt on your steak or your fish. It doesn't bring out the flavor. It, it's just nasty. It, it ruins it. And that's what he's saying is someone who follows me halfway or most of the way, <coughs> you're ruined. It's actually not good for you. And because you're inoculated from the gospel, you think I'm, I'm saved, I'm Christ's, I'm living the life that he called me to, and actually you're not. That's not the way he designed things to be. He designed following him to be all the way, okay? Full surrender, fullest love, fullest commitment, more than anything else in life, such that you, by comparison, hate your family. We'll get to that. Um, but it's also really harmful to the world, to, to, for the world to see let's just say the American church, our church that's half committed or partly or even most of the way committed to Jesus but not fully surrendered is harmful because they say, okay, that's what he calls us to. That's what Jesus looks like. That's his body, really? And Jesus said it's worse than worthless. It's only good to be tossed out. But what is he, so it's, it, it's sensible, it makes sense actually. So what is Jesus doing here? He's not just shellacking us up the side of the head. Okay? He's not doing that. He's inviting us, if we look at this text and consider it more carefully, into relationship. He's inviting us into relationship. He's calling us to love him with all that we are, and we'll get into that. And he's not saying, he's not just saying, die. He's saying, pick up your cross and follow me. Live with me in the way that I've called you to. I'm showing you the way to life with me, in relationship with me. Um, so let's, let's dive in for a few minutes to this, this outrageous sort of demand that he's making. He's saying, look, if you follow me, you have to hate, you have to hate your family. And if you don't, then you can't follow me. Um, okay. So what's, what's he saying here? Um, place here. Kind of rearranged this morning. Give me a few seconds. Sorry. Okay. He's saying this. We have to understand hate from a ancient Near Eastern Semitic Jewish uh, perspective. Hate in biblical Semitic language doesn't mean hate in the way we think of it. It means it's a comparative term to love less. So one instance of that is Malachi one of the last prophets, chapter 1, one of the first few verses, verse 2 and following. Um, God says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now, there's a sense in which God loves his creation. He doesn't hate Esau in the way that we think of it. What he's saying is, I've chosen Jacob in a special way to pour my love out on him and to, and to continue my line through him that will save the world. He's my own, my precious chosen one. Because Esau and his line actually received favored status um, moving forward, the Edomites. So it's a comparative, it's a comparative term. It's, it's saying to love less, really. Um, God is saying plainly that if, Jesus is saying plainly, that if we choose to follow him, we must love him, not more than most things, we must love him most. 
He wants all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our souls. Other loves need to pale in comparison to your love for me. And that is the only way that life is really going to work for you, friend. And we'll, we'll dive into that more. Um, and that's what the greatest command in the Old Testament, which the Jews referred to with one word, Shema. It's the first word of the command. Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength. If we do this, everything else falls into place. Tim Keller, he says this. He says, in Semitic usage in the Bible, again, the word hate can mean hate actively, but it can also mean hate comparatively. Even though it wasn't mean, he didn't curse her. He wasn't unkind to her. He was perfectly affectionate, but compared to Rachel, Jacob's attitude toward Leah was like hatred. This is an Old Testament story. He had two wives, and he loved them both. He preferred, and he had a special love for Rachel. He's saying, I want you to love me. What he's saying is, look at these kinds of love. This is Jesus, okay? Look at these kinds of love. Father and mother, those are what the Greeks called storge love, a love for our father and mother. Familial love, uh, familiar love, affection. Then look at wife. That's erotic love, not just, but it, it does include that. Then look at child. That's another kind of love. You love your child in a different way than you love your parents. You love your uh, child in a different way than you love your spouse, hopefully. Then there are brothers and sisters. These might not be siblings. Uh, they might just be friends. But here's what Jesus is doing, says Keller. He's taking every kind of love there is, every kind of human love. He's taking sexual love. He's taking friendship love. He's taking family love. He's taking all these kinds of love. Um, and he's saying, I want and I offer a kind of love that will make all these pale by comparison. I don't want sentiment. I don't want just an inspirational feeling at the end of the sermon. I want to love as real as your love for your wife or your husband, as real, as passionate, as interactive, as delightful, and then so much more that it makes every other kind of love, again, pale by comparison. He says, says Keller, to finish the quote, I want to be the Rachel of your life. I want to be the thing that you would, you're driven for, that you will give decades of your life away to, that you will give all of your life away to. And if I'm not that, then I don't want to be anything. That's what he tells the crowds. And that's what he's telling us. St. Augustine talked about, he was a 4th and 5th century church father, and he talked about something that he called rightly ordered loves. And I think that's one of the keys to this, this demand that Jesus is making here. Again, it's, he's telling us about actually how life works. And what Augustine says is, he says that life consists of having rightly ordered loves. That's the key to life. And if you flip that, the way that life gets screwed up and what sin is, is taking a love that we should have for something and making it, putting it above where it should be. So if you put, if you love your kids more, that's good. You should love your kids. But if you put the love for your kids above your love for your spouse, things are going to start to fall apart in your life. Maybe slowly at first, maybe just some shin splints and fissures, but eventually things will break. That's not the way it's, things were created to be. If you love your dog, you should love your dog. More than you love your kids, that's going to be a problem. Okay, if you love your golf game or watching soaps, I don't know. Who watches soaps anymore? I don't know. Any of those things more than you love a family member, that's a problem, okay? Um, Augustine says the key to life is having rightly ordered loves. And the only way life works is if we love God first. 
And I just want to ask you, friend, is there anything in your life that you are not, I'm not talking lip service, I'm not talking Sunday school answer, I'm talking really, truly from the way that you act and from your affection and the things you think about, okay, and then what you give your time and your heart to, that you love more than the living God. And Jesus is saying, your life is not going to work. That's what sin is. It's taking, it's taking a love and making it an ultimate love. And God is saying the only life, way life works is if I'm your ultimate love, if I'm your Rachel. That's, that's it. And what we do when we sin every time, and it has a thousand manifestations, is we're taking something that we probably ought to love, unless it's something that's just utterly, you know, there are sins that we just ought, that aren't good at all. But we usually take a good and put it above God and make it an ultimate good and really give our hearts to it and say, if I can only have this, if I can only do this, this will give me meaning, this will give me happiness, this will satisfy. And if you've ever been hiking in the mountains, one thing you know is that, you know, if you have a guide or whatever, or if you don't have a guide, let's say, every hill, once you get close to the top, seems like the final hill. But you never quite reach it. You never quite reach it. There's always another false, a faux peak, as it were. That's the way these things are. It's like somebody dragging the coin along the street. You don't see that it's tied to to a, a string and you're just constantly chasing it, you're never going to get to that satisfaction. You're never going to get that identity that you're searching for unless you hook it into God. That's just the way that he made things. He made us for himself. And until we rest in him, we will be unquiet. We'll be not at rest. Okay, that's also Augustine. Um, so, something else that's Maybe more profound, not maybe, okay, I'm going to get in trouble for this again. The cake thing, no, she, she, she's fine. But um, more profound than a cake, more profound than even a plane is marriage. Something else that doesn't work well halfway, okay? Again, if you love your spouse halfway or mostly, it's just not, that's not the way marriage is supposed to be. It, it, at the altar, you vow to give yourself fully to one another and to love only God more. And if you do that, Marriage works, and actually everything else underneath that. Well, but if you love your kids more than your spouse, then eventually your kids are going to even feel unloved, and your spouse is certainly being neglected. See how that works? Um, and that's the way that God is saying that he works with us. He's saying, look, Austin says this when he anchors all the time, church makes a terrible hobby. Because the church is the body of Christ, and he's called us to lay our lives down for one another and for the world as he laid his life down for us. Jesus, in following the living God who laid his life down for us, makes a terrible hobby. He's saying, in fact, it's so terrible, it's worse than worthless. It's worthy to just be thrown out on the dung heap. So follow me all the way or not at all. Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you with some Lewis. He says this in Mere Christianity. He says, when Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors the idea that they could be like gods, could set up their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God, and out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of a man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. Okay, so he made us sort of like a man invents an engine, right? A car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Like if you try to put milk in your car when you leave here, 
before you meet us for lunch at HEB, it's not going to run. Okay? Now, God has designed the human machine to run on himself. Try to put something else in there. It'll run for a while, but eventually it'll break down forever. And that's the penalty of severing ourselves from the living God. It's the natural consequence of the way we're designed, friends. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. And then he says, this is the key to history. What does he mean, this is the key to history? Sort of like he infers, or excuse me, implies earlier, this is the key to history because history is essentially, ever since Genesis 3, is a chronicle of men trying to make something other than God, trying to put something other than God in the tank, in their engine. And our cars just don't run on that. So we have war and poverty and prostitution and wrong uses of money and idols and heartache and an eternity apart from God and so on and so forth and so on and so forth. So this is, Lewis says, what is wrong with the world? Okay. Now here's what Jesus is not saying as we transition to a much briefer point too. Here's what he's not saying, okay? Um, he's not saying that we can be we can make ourselves worthy of him by following him in a certain way. He's not saying that. How do I know? There's a parallel passage to this. It says the same thing almost exactly in Matthew. All the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have this passage in variation. Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not, here's the word, worthy, axios in the Greek, of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Um, There's a parable right after our text here in Luke 14. The next, excuse me, the next passage is a passage where Jesus tells three stories all together to the same audience. Boom, boom, boom. And they all give essentially the same point in increasing order of grabbing you by the throat. And the last of those is the parable that we all have heard of, at least probably, the parable of the prodigal son. There's a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then a lost son. And it's the third in the consummation. And it's in Luke 15, right after this text by Jesus that we're studying this morning. And it's a story of a son who leaves his father, who loves him very much, and he basically gives him the double bones, the finger, and he says, basically, in that culture, he's basically saying, I wish you were dead. Give me what's due to me, and I'm out. And then he goes and he burns all of it, further shaming his father in raucous living, in wild living. And then he hits the bottom, and rather than going, man, I really feel terrible about the way I shame my dad. I actually love him. No, there's none of that. He's miserable, and he's feeding pigs, and he wishes he could eat what the pigs are eating. And then it says this. When he came to himself, here's the turning point of the parable. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I am perishing here with hunger, and I will arise and go to my father. And I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It's the same word, axios in the Greek, same word, okay? The fact is, that's true. He's dead right. There, he is not worthy. So he's going to give this speech to his dad. Just make me a servant, please. I'm not worthy to be called your son. What happens? He goes home, and before he can get, right when he gets inside of the house, comes over the curvature of the earth, turns out his father's been scanning the horizon day after day, watching for him. His father, in an undignified, patriarchal way, hikes up his robe, hikes up his skirts, and runs. If you didn't run as a patriarch in the ancient Near East, it's undignified. Runs out to meet his father, whom the whole community understands has shamed him, this son who is definitely unworthy. He's definitely unworthy of his father's love. Definitely. Father runs out to meet him, and the son starts the speech. I'm not worthy. Father cuts the speech off, throws his arms around him, weeps. And instead of bringing him in to be a servant, he says, Hey, servants, party, ring, robe, pronto. Kill the fattened calf. My son who was dead is now alive. He's come home. What's the point? The point is, the son is not worthy, but in this parable, he's treated as such. How is that possible? How is it possible? It's possible because point two, Jesus, in a much shorter point, Jesus takes his own medicine, okay? So he's given us this call with a very high cost, and he's told us all about it up front, which means we should actually trust this guy. And then he takes his own medicine, point two. What do I mean by that? God is not calling us to do anything that he has not already done. In this case, that he is not going to do, that nobody knew he was going to do. He is going, Jesus is telling his disciples to carry their crosses, but he's not sitting there drinking a martini, you know, doing like, hey, follow me, carry your cross, you know, sipping a, swilling a, a drink. He's not doing that. What is he doing? He's going to the cross. He's going to the cross. And he is going to suffer for us, the worthy one, the one, the only one, the only human who's ever worthy, who ever obeyed the Father fully from the heart, who, the only one who doesn't deserve punishment, the only one who is worthy to be called a son of God, okay? He went to the cross and took the punishment that we unworthy sons and daughters deserve. So that, and then he conferred his own worthiness onto us, onto anyone who will look to him to be saved and say, you took what I got. You came to save me. And Jesus is the one telling this parable. He's the one telling this parable. And what he's doing is, is like, you kind of have to read it in the context and you kind of have to know a little bit about the ancient Near East to, I think, totally get it. But again, this is the third parable. And hear about it or read it or think about it out of context, but they were all told together. And the first two are about lost things. Well, they all are, right? But the first two are different. The first two are a setup. The first parable he tells to the Pharisees, um, it's about a lost sheep. And the sheep loses itself. How much does the sheep do to get home? Zero, worse than zero, still going out and still losing itself and still being an idiot. And the shepherd goes and he leaves his entire flock that's safe to go find that thing. And he puts it on his shoulders and he brings it home. He does everything necessary to bring it home. He leaves home to bring it home. Same thing with the coin. How much does a, can a coin do to be found? Zero. But the lady sweeps the house, does everything necessary, finds the coin, throws a party. What we are supposed to see in the prodigal son parable, the third one is, wait a minute. 
Okay, there's a difference here. This son seems to come home himself. But actually, the way that he comes home, he doesn't come home because he loves the father. He comes home because he's poor and broke, and he has a speech. And it's all the father's the one who runs out to meet him and receives him and says, you're, basically, you're worthy. He confers worthiness on him, even though the son's not worthy. How is this possible? It's possible because of the teller of the parable, Jesus. Jesus, in this culture, the elder brother who's also in this parable, he stands out there and he's like, that son isn't worthy. He doesn't deserve anything. We shouldn't be throwing a party for him. He should be considered dead. And those are the, he's basically talking about the Pharisees. He's saying, you should rejoice when a sinner is brought home, when a sinner comes home to the Father. You have everything, you have everything that, that, that you're a son. Come home. You can't earn it. And what Jesus is saying is basically, look, I'm going to the cross. I left home. I left all the comforts of heaven, all the fellowship of my father, and I emptied myself of everything, Philippians 2, of all that wealth and all that privilege and all that rich, all those riches, and I made myself a helpless child, and I grew up and I lived a life of obedience under the law, under the curse, obeying the father from the heart, and I'm going to the cross, and I have come to do all this because I left home to come bring straying sons and daughters home. The reason that that son can be called worthy is because Jesus actually is the elder brother that the Pharisees weren't, that the religious leaders weren't, that the learned weren't, that we're not. He's the elder brother who left all the privilege and wealth and status and the comfort of home, and he went out to the far country, to this tiny planet called Earth, and he made himself of no account and he endured the scorn and the hell of a Roman cross and had the Father, the wrath of the Father for our sins poured out upon him. And in so doing, he provided a way for us to come home. He is that way. He left everything. And he's saying, I am the way home. He took his own medicine. And he left home to bring us home. Um, which leads us to the third and final point. He is doing something so much more than even saying, hey, follow me. Hey, be with me. Hey, be next to me. He's actually, God is in the process through Christ who left home to bring us home, of making us homes for him. Okay? What do I mean? He's in the process of making us something that we can't even imagine now. But he's actually doing it. Okay? And what, it, what he's requiring of us is full surrender to enter into that. What do I mean by that? Well, again, and this is the last time this sermon that I use Lewis. But Lewis, toward the end of mere Christianity, toward the, toward the end of his talks, he talks about how, he's like, hey, when I was little, I would have a pain in my tooth, but I wouldn't tell mom because the prob what I wanted was just some painkiller. Make the pain go away. But what I knew is if I told mom, she's going to take me to the dentist. And the dentist was not just going to make the pain go away. He was going to pull a tooth, put a new one in, straighten out my teeth, do all the work necessary for me to have. And again, in Britain, this is a stretch, but, you know, apparently, you know, he's going to do all the work necessary for me to have nice, straight teeth, clean mouth, pull out the cavities. Lots of pain is involved in that. And he was like, man, as a seven-year-old, I just didn't want to sign up for that. I just wanted to get rid of the pain. And he said, a lot of us come to God like that. Hey, will you take care of this sin? It's really screwing my life up. But God loves us too much for that, and that's not the way he works. There's a sense in which Jesus isn't just saying, hey, come to me all the way or not at all. He's saying, I come to you all the way or not at all. I don't just take your pain away. 
I am making, I'm completely renovating. If I start on you as the living God, I will not stop until you're finished. And that is going to hurt. And love hurts. Real love is not without cost. It cost him everything, and it will cost us. And Lewis finishes that with this. He finishes that um, illustration about the dentist with this. He says, that is why we must not be surprised if we're in for a rough time. When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected, he often feels that it would now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When troubles come along, illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptation, he is disappointed. These things he feels might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his bad old days. But why now? Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level, putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of before. And friends, that does not come without pain. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he is to make of us, he means to make of us. I find I must borrow yet another parable from George MacDonald. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. He is making us homes for him. That is his plan A and his only plan. And it is going to hurt, but man, is it going to be worth it. Count the cost. And what is he doing? He's also making us in that, not just me a house, but us a home. As a body of believers, he's making us his own body, has made us together as we share life together. And so, that's one of the reasons that we call you. It's not just, hey, come to parish because we have food and it's the cool thing. Or we want to, like, grow this church so that whatever, for whatever shallow reason. It's because God has made us family and we actually want to live like it. And what we have to do is lean into what we don't feel but what he tells us in his word. Into what we know to be true. And to see our commitments to one another to live into those in such a way that we are actually telling each other in the world, I believe that he has made us a family. And the way that we sacrifice for each other, that we give to each other, that we endure pain for one another, that we stick alongside each other when brother or sister is going astray. Um, this is not just coming together once a week or twice a week. It's sharing our very lives because he has made us a family. And the blood of Christ that binds us is thicker than biological blood. You won't feel that right away. But to let Christ's word and that truth lead your feelings. Eventually, your feelings will follow. But feelings aren't the important thing, okay? And sometimes we need to act in the face of our feelings, in the teeth of our feelings, based on what God has said. And the world, Jesus says in, Luke, in John 13, will look at the kind of love that we have for one another, even imp imperfectly, as we begin to image loving each other imperfectly, yes, in that way. 
leaning into that fact that he is making us homes for him, a home for him, a family. And they will say, Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is who he said he was. God is real. He says, this is the apologetic the world needs to see. Amazing. So what does this mean? Does this mean I need to, I need to move to the mission field? Probably not. Probably not. Your mission, at least for right now, is here. And most of you, that is your call, here. And if God is calling you elsewhere, may he make that clear. Does this mean that I must quit my job and become a pastor? Because that's, that's, that's the A-team Christian. No, please don't. Um, you can reach people, body of Christ, in the world that is lost as a goose, in this city, in this gallery area that I, never, that I can't touch. You are the hands and feet of Christ. You are the body of Christ in, in the world. Excuse me. Um, and maybe God is calling you to that, but he'll make it clear. You won't be able to do anything else. If you can do something else, do that and make that be worship unto God. And people will see. And people will take notice. Must I sell all my possessions? Again, probably not. But when the penny drops here as to what Christ is calling us to and how much he loves us and what he demands and what he's done for us, it will begin to free our hearts in such a way that we will be more generous as a people that we won't hold on to people or things or opportunities or whatevers as much as we did. It's a gradual process, this death, this carrying our cross. It's not carry your electric chair. It's not hang yourself. That, those are immediate. It's carry your cross. It's a slow, excruciating death. It takes time. It's discipleship. It's day to day to day saying, Lord, put to death my old man. Crucify me. You're the boss. Spending time in his word, in prayer, in Christian community, and watching him fill our lives with himself. He wants all of us. And actually, self-abandonment to him is, is the road, the only road to satisfaction. And a life of weakness, of laying our lives down, is actually the only road to power. I'm reading a book right now called For the Glory. It's on the, if, it's on the, if, it's on the life of a man named Eric Little, who was in sort of early 20th century um, Scottish, he grew up in China, but Scottish, a Scotsman. He was in the 1924 Paris Olympics and won gold in, the, I think, the 400. There's also a movie about his, about his, not his whole life, but about that race and his training and um, called Chariots of Fire. It was 1981, best picture. If you haven't seen it, it's my number one film of all time. Please watch it. <clears throat> my alma mater, a new college at University of Edinburgh, is in the, in the film a little bit. So he runs, he runs past uh, John Knox in the quad and doffs his cap to him. And so if you watch it, doff your cap to John Knox as well. But uh, <coughs> the movie and the book follow, well, really the movie, Chariots of Fire, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> follow two men, Eric Little, who's a Christian, a fully devoted follower of Christ, and also fast as grease lightning, and Harold Abrams, who's an Englishman and who's at Cambridge, and who, they both end up running in the 1924 Paris Olympics for the same team, for Great Britain. And Abrams is not a Christian. And he has this poignant line in the movie. He says this. He says, I have, he's a sprinter, 100 meters. He says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. If you do not follow Christ with all that you have and abandon everything else by comparison to follow him and give him all that you are, this will be on your epitaph. Whether or not you write, whatever you write on your epitaph, it will be true of your life. That whatever else you're following, that will be what you're trying to have define your existence. And you know what? It never will. It'll never satisfy you. I promise you. 
You're putting milk in your tank. But little, he watched, Abram's watched little run, and, and, and it un, he said it unnerves me to watch him run. He runs like a wild animal. And little, actually, his sister had one complaint. He died in a Japanese concentration camp in China because he left all the accolades after winning the gold of the Olympics and went to be a missionary, went back to being a missionary. Um, but he ran, his sister said the only thing about the movie that's not true is that in the movie he runs with his head back, but she said it, it's not far enough back. In, the, in, the, in, the, in real life, it was like straight up to heaven, cocked back. And you can see pictures of him running in the Olympics. And when he breaks the tape, his head's just boom. He's just free. He's like a wild animal. Totally, every, his running is, he says, my running is an extension of who I am. It's worship. He said, God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And so his, his, everything he did was an extension. He was free. He wasn't trying to define himself by how fast he was. If he lost, no big deal. If he won, no big deal. Because God defined who he was. And he was worshiping, looking at his creator as he ran. And this unnerved Abrams. And it was such a contrast. And the book tells the rest of the story. Like I said, little goes on to die an early death in a concentration camp. And Abrams lives a lot longer and goes on um, to... He's in Parliament, in British Parliament, after graduating from Cambridge. And, and when he dies, when Abrams dies, there's a funeral for him in a church. Um, and a few people mourn. But when Little dies, as the movie finishes, all of Scotland mourns. And we're still talking about him today. And they still have plaques in front of churches in Edinburgh dedicated to him. And his name in heaven is great because he let go. He let go of everything and he just followed Christ. And through that, he found meaning in everything, even running. the last illustration I'll leave you with. There's one other thing that doesn't work halfway. And that's an acorn. And this is something Jesus talks about, right? An acorn doesn't work halfway. Um, if, if it sits there and doesn't open up and surrender and die in a sense to itself and give up its rights as it were, it's useless. It's, it's really worse than worthless because if you ever stepped on an acorn with no shoes on, owie, they're just annoying. But if it dies in the ground, and this is what Keller says, and it's absolutely true. If an acorn dies in the ground, it has enough power inside of it that's released through that surrender to reforest the entire earth. Why is that? Because one acorn that surrenders grows into an oak tree that has thousands of acorns, some of which take root, and those grow up that have thousands and so on, and so on, and so on. Jesus is not giving us a word that's a shellacking so much as a way and the only way to life and satisfaction and power, actually, and peace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for giving us your son, for making us worthy because he's worthy, for taking the punishment that we deserve. I pray that we would follow Christ all the way and that through that you would bring revival for his glory in his name. Amen.